0: Hello. Welcome to the Longform podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from The Outivist. I am joined by my co-hosts Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. Hey guys. Hey there quick break from the constant hammering in our studio got a little construction going on it's a nice feature of any recording studio Uh, constant hammering (laughs) well it's 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 actually considered good luck to have a carpentry shop above your studio (laughs) uh evan who'd you talk to this week this week i talked to dan p lee who uh writes predominantly for new york magazine at the moment uh has a collection of really great pieces uh there and also is a very candid guy to talk to about his career and about the magazine industry in general
1: yeah i'm really psyched we got him on he's been like on
0: on the list from the start and we got a great sponsor this week it's tiny letter from the good people at mailchimp we thank them for their sponsorship i also oh, look i just got a good email here uh a, a podcast listener uh requesting uh a guest here uh, requesting uh, brian phillips from grantland so we'll try and get brian phillips on at some point and we do appreciate um these emails that have come in requesting guests if you have a guest you'd like to hear on the show Editors at longform.org. Here is uh, Evan and Dan Peeley. Hi, Dan. Hi. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Did you come up from Philadelphia? I like- didn't. I don't live in Philly.
1: I live no. um, on a tiny barrier island off the coast of New Jersey, the bottommost po- part of New Jersey. Get out. No, it's near where I grew up. So.
0: Huh, I I've, I guess I just you used to write for Philadelphia magazine. I did, I yeah.
1: Uh huh. But I ended up in a very uh, probably unwise real estate venture buying this shack on the beach, which um, I'm trying to get heat into at the moment. So <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah. So it's nice and warm in here, which is nice.
0: Yeah, we we set it up just yeah. to, just for you. Well, this actually relates to the first thing that I w- I w- wanted to talk about, which is. You know, we always try to prepare for these interviews, and uh, that's actually one of the most fun parts is like going back and reading. I've read like eight of your stories in the last 72 hours. I apologize. No, that. no, not at all. Um, and, but we also, you know, like Googling around, seeing, you know, some of your history and things like that. And you maintain one of the lowest online profiles of, I think, anyone that I've ever interviewed for this podcast. Like, it's difficult to even find a photo of you... Yeah, that's... Uh, ...online. Yeah. I'm is that tra- intentional?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to be the uh, print version of Terrence Malick. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but it is intentional, yeah. What's
0: what's uh what's I'm just a very it?
1: private person, and I'm not... And this probably is... I could probably have a better career if I'd be a little more public, but it's just not my thing, so... I find every day I lose more Twitter followers because my <laughs> tweets don't apparently connect well. So.
0: I, it was remarkable that you were even on <laughs> yeah, Twitter no, I, after looking around. But it's you, just
1: like a personal yeah. uh, pet project mostly.
0: So. Yeah, it, it, feels little, uh, <laughs> it feels a little non-sequitur. It doesn't yeah. feel like you're trying to sort of like build up an audience yeah. with uh, revelations. Yeah,
1: I'm not promoting well. But <laughs> every once in a while I'll retweet a story <laughs> I've written, but then I feel a little cheap in doing that, but... I guess pays the bills well
0: that's amazing relative to the now wider world of like people having I mean tweeting much less like a website about all of your work and everything else is like standard fare for a writer did you reach like a some point where people were either telling you that you needed to do that or you started to think that and you actually made a conscious decision like no actually I'm gonna I'm gonna it's gonna be based on my work alone and I don't want myself out there
1: I've never it's never even really it's not I mean I have thought about it a little bit but it's not it's just you know I don't live in New York and I'm not um you know the magazine sometimes I've done some stories that they've wanted me to do press for you know and I've never really wanted to do it because I just feel like I don't really have that much to add and I'm not that you know beyond what I've written in a story I'm really not that interesting so
0: that's my thought
1: so I never really aimed to get into the business anyway. So maybe that's also part of the reason why.
0: Well, so how did the, how did this accidentally happen? I mean, because you're not online, I literally I know nothing. Yeah. I know nothing except stories you've written. So yeah, well, um, as, we, all, 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 as far as I could tell, you like came fully formed as a long form <laughs> magazine writer at Philadelphia Magazine. Like, no, not at all. Seven um, years ago or something.
1: Well, the the long sorted story is, um, I guess if. I never wanted to be a journalist at all. I didn't know what I wanted to do, or a writer. And um, I went to Boston College initially before I ended up transferring to UNC Chapel Hill, which is where I graduated from. But I had a professor there uh, by the name of Joe Bergentino, who was a... Boston College? Yeah, at Boston College, who was... Uh, I believe the affiliate is WBZ, the CBS. Um, he was, like, an investigative reporter for the station up there, and he did this, like you know, lecture. He'd come like in makeup from the studio and then like, um, and I took it as a random like elective thing. And I ended up sort of, we, we did mostly like fake TV news writing. Um, and I sort of took to it a little bit and he thought I was pretty good and I really didn't like going to BC. And one day we were like leaving class and walking through like the Gothic campus. And he was like, you know, you should really be a journalist. And I was like, ah, eh, I don't know. And he was like, well, what are you doing here? And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, well, I'll give you a list of journalism schools. And UNC was on there, and I never thought anything of it and applied, got in, and transferred without ever having visited. Um, And then I got into the J school there, and then I started writing pretty much immediately like for money because I've always believed that you you should be paid for Mm -hmm. writing. Mm -hmm. So I just started freelancing a little bit, and then my first job, I was, when I graduated from college, I had applied to a bunch of jobs, for different papers, and didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to do the whole Europe thing, and everyone has their, like, cliche September 11th thing, but I was like, ah, you know, it would be cool to be a newspaper reporter. And I didn't know where else to apply, so I was living with my parents at the time, and I ended up applying to the Atlantic City Press. And I worked there for about three years. I Is it a daily? It's a daily newspaper. Uh huh. Covering Atlantic City and the southernmost part of New Jersey. And uh, yeah, I was a um, beat reporter there. I spent the entire my entire career there on probation. Um, because I did not show up at the appropriate times, and they didn't like me. But um, yeah, that was the beginning of my illustrious career. So, and but I you're... spent a good portion of my career in Philadelphia Magazine on probation as well. So
0: yeah. So is this? Uh, you're just not a you're just not a man for deadlines, or well, it's oh God, but my you editor like could like the stories
1: work. about that. Uh, no, I just didn't really particularly like working in an office, and uh, um. Yeah, I didn't see why I had to be in the office, and we had a very there was a very idiosyncratic owner of Philly Mag who didn't who wanted everyone to wear suits, and like I like to wear jeans, so that was cause for probation. But anyway, yeah, so that's the beginning, and pretty much not a suit man, not a suit man, (laughs) despite my current appearance.
0: Yeah, I never heard that. a magazine wanting everyone. Yeah, to wear well, a suit. my joke Great. was
1: always that if you wanted us to wear a suit, he should pay us a lot more money so we could afford one. You know, <laughs> because we weren't being paid particularly well. But
0: so, was there? um Did you feel like there was a uh, a progression from get to getting to do the work that you wanted to do? That did you idealize a certain type of work or a certain type of? writer and say this is what I want to do and kind of work towards that or you just fall into different assignments?
1: Not really. Um, I'm a very like um, long-winded person so I always found uh, the newspaper um, constraint to be constraining so I would always turn in longer drafts and want to do sort of more what they were calling enterprise type reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't work out there at all and uh, so I just sort of left and eventually went to do like a little cliche romp through Europe and then was like, "Ah, I think I'm going to write longer stuff. And I ended up um, applying and getting into um, an MFA program in North Carolina on the beach at UNC Wilmington. Um, And that was the first of two MFA programs I dropped out of. Um, And there um, I took um, a workshop, a nonfiction workshop with John Jeremiah Sullivan who's, you know, everyone's favorite, yeah Um, whatever. Um, And I had never written anything long or anything at all, and um, I wrote, like, a memoir-ish essay for the class. And MFA program, my experience there, which is a long tangent, was very interesting. I I didn't – I'm really sounding misanthropic, but I really didn't get along well with, like, the way that – worked out and was structured. At Wilmington. Well, just in general, I don't think that, you know, there's, again, this is like another conversation, but there's a lot of interesting uh, politics and like, almost like Dawson Creek, Dawson's Creek-esque relationships that go on in MFA programs. And uh, yeah, and I just wasn't good at any of that. And um, anyway, John was super nice and the class hated my piece um, (laughs) that I had like, you know, poured everything into and it went really, really badly. Like it's, you do those, I
0: actually do been in one of these these programs, where you but you'd like it. people go oh, around the circle and yeah, people say. And, and yeah, and people,
1: you know, and I, this was very interesting to me because I didn't know anything about, I'd never been workshopped before. I didn't realize it was a verb and we were just all sitting around and um, I had written, this. it was really long. It was longer than what we were supposed to um, write. It was a memoir, like I said, which I've never since written anything like that and the class really didn't like it. Um, And I didn't realize you just go around and each person takes a turn being like, I hate you and I hate (laughs) this and here's why, and you're not allowed to say anything. So it's like very strange. So I had decided at the end of it that I was gonna drop out of the MFA program. This was like the first semester of it. And it was really weird. I mean, I shouldn't even be telling the story, (laughs) but... um, And it was funny because I could tell that Sullivan was like letting them go. Um, I mean, after the fact, I could tell. And then, um, yeah, I've never told this before. It's kind of a strange it's sort of self-indulgent thing. But yeah. he was like... That's what we do here. Exactly, he, it right. It may not be your thing, but yeah. that's actually what... That's the entire well, point of this figured, podcast. I yeah, I want to give you most bang for your buck. <laughs> so I don't have many bold face <laughs> names, so I'll throw John in here. But basically, he was really cool. And after, you know, they we workshopped two pieces of class, basically, My rem- my memory is... And I went second, and I stopped listening to everyone. And I had had one of those, like, planners, you know, that you have um, that the school, you know, with, like, the school holidays and everything. And in there it had, like, the registrar information, and I was, like, looking up where the office was. I was going to leave directly from there. During the class. Right out. Yeah, I was done. (laughs) And um, everyone finished, and I just was really smarting. I felt, like, super bruised. And he was... Everyone was packing up their stuff and leaving. And as I was walking out, he was like, hey, um, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, okay. And then we had this very strange experience. And I didn't know at that point who, you know, I guess John Sullivan wasn't who he was. What what
0: time period would that be?
1: (sighs) I guess this was probably around the mid-2000, about 2005 maybe, 2005, 2006. He had written that piece, um, which I didn't know who he was until I signed up for the class, and okay. he had done that Unto This Rock piece for GQ, that, yeah. like, famous thing. Yeah. And then I read that, you know, once I started in the class, I was like, oh, God, this guy's really good. And, um, yeah, so he we had this very strange walk up to his office where neither one of us spoke a word, and then we went into his office afterward, and he was basically like um those kids are assholes don't I mean they weren't kids but you know people they're assholes don't listen to anything they said this piece is great and you can be a writer if you want and i was like ah you know please no need to placate me like i had no i still really had no idea how you know successful he was or who he you know <laughs> really? who he was and i just was being so <laughs> ridiculous and i was like i appreciate you you know taking the time to stop make me stop patronizing feel, me exactly and he was like uh i don't care anything about you at all he was like, but you are a good writer, so you shouldn't let that get to you. So um, this is like the story, I guess. Um, I then became like obsessed with the idea that I couldn't stand writing not for money. I mean, I had been a newspaper reporter. I yeah. had always been like, if I'm going to write something, I need to get paid for it. Um, MFA,
0: you're you're paying someone else. Exactly, and right. It,
1: that So the whole thing didn't work well for me. So... Um, I had this idea um, from when I had worked at the newspaper, um, there had been this uh, woman who died and her husband was arrested in a small island called Brigantine off the coast of Atlantic City. And she uh, he had been arrested. He was a cop. Um, I think he was an Atlantic City cop, but he was a cop and he'd been arrested and charged with killing her. And this story had been ongoing for years when I was at the paper. And as it turned out, the um, medical examiner of the area, a guy by the name of Elliot Gross, um, had made an error in the um, the autopsy, which was found by his arch rival, um, who had... Um, preceded him in a very, this was a notorious story, and I think the 70s or 80s in New York, they were each the chief uh, medical examiner for New York City. Mm. And they had been fighting for years. And I had just been really into the story. I thought it was really cool. And um, so the second semester, I started writing it, um, you know, and I started, like, lying to get people to talk to me by being like, oh, um, you know, I have a publication, a relationship with some
0: publication. I don't know what it is yet, but... Did you use and, a real publication, or you just make up a? Well,
1: as as it got further on, I started to yeah, and I think I did even use Philly Mag. I mean, I shouldn't say any of this, but um, and I had had no relationship with Philly Mag. My grandparents had subscribed to it, and I had read it as a kid at their house. And it doesn't it was, count as an assignment. Yeah, likely. no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't.
0: I've I've, been, I've worked with them in the past. Yeah. I have a we have yeah. a relationship. Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. I've read the magazine, so I basically work for them. And anyway, so. Um, I started reporting and doing this whole like crazy piece and, um, about, you know, and it became a lot about, um, forensic pathology. I got super into it and, um, you know, traveled around to like find out more and, um, finished the piece. And, um, that was like the end of my first year and through, a relationship with some with um an editor, old editor I'd had at the paper at the Atlantic City paper who had done some freelancing for them. I arranged to have a lunch with an editor, um, his editor in Philadelphia and um I basically was like, Will you read this story? And they said, Yeah and they read it and they bought it and ran it, um, and said, um, you shouldn't go back to grad school because mm. maybe we'll hire you. So, um I said, okay. So I actually called John Sullivan on the phone, and I said, this magazine's offered me a job. Well, I guess I emailed him and said, can I talk to you on the phone? And he said, yeah, here's my number, call me. Because we weren't, like, buddies or anything. And But, you know, I had admired his career, I guess. And um, he said, you know, you should totally, you should totally drop out. Um, and you should, like, this is the job that you probably would, if you were lucky, you would get at the end yeah. of this experience. So take the job. So... I did. I kept waitering. I was uh, waiting tables at a place in Cape May and I started doing some freelance stuff for Philly Mag because they basically like were giving me a test run because I'd never done any long form writing. I only had newspaper clips mm-hmm. and that's how I got a job. That's how it started.
0: And they hired you on staff as a kind of like full, full-time full They did. I became staff a writer.
1: staff writer for them, uh, which was interesting because I didn't know anything about any of this stuff and This is another stupid tangent, but I was working at this restaurant called Harpoon Henry's in Cape May, which was, you know, featured a guy named Captain Larry who looked like Santa Claus and played um, Jimmy Buffett songs while people got wasted. And I wasn't a very good waiter, but I went up for this, what I thought was the job interview, and um, the editor of the magazine, and the guy who became my editor, took me out to this place called Rouge on Rittenhouse Square, which was at that time, like, a pretty... Fancy restaurant and they were like get anything you want and it was like noon and they were like get a cocktail and I was like no 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 and they it's were like school. no 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 get a cocktail so I was like okay and then like you know the dance went on and they were like um, so you know we really think we really like you or we we want to offer you a job like full time job on staff and I said oh my god okay great and I thought it was totally you know untoward to talk about money. So I said nothing. Yeah. I drove, I had to be in work at like four o'clock back at Harpoon Henry. So I got back down there and I worked with one of the greatest collection of people I've ever worked with. They were mostly all middle-aged women uh-huh. and, um, but like really great people. And I was like, they knew I was going and I got back there and they were like, oh, how'd it go? And I was like, it was incredible. They took me to Rouge on Rittenhouse Square. I had never, I had not spent much time in Philly. I didn't know anything about it, and I was like, "Oh, it's like a European garden," <laughs> and you know, I had like a cocktail, and they offered me a job, and they were like, "Oh my God, did you talk about money?" And I was like, "No, we didn't talk about money because it would have, you know, it would have been vulgar given how you know high class the environment was." I was like, "But I'm sure, I'm sure that we're talking at least eighty-five thousand a year." So <laughs> yeah. Then when I got the contract in the mail that was like the thing, I called editor on the phone and I was like, I don't understand. Is this weekly? Is this because the way the contract was written, it was for, you know, a twice monthly payment. But yeah. I was like, I don't, I don't understand how this could add up. What about Rouge? What about the European Guard? You guys are eating Rouge lunch <laughs> yeah, every day. Exactly. So, Making real money. But you yeah. took it
0: anyway. And you had to go tell the captain...
1: Well, you mean at at, at the, at the restaurant? Yeah. No, because it sort of. I, I kept that job because I didn't want. Oh, you to, did. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I didn't. I mean, I made more money there than I made, you know, at Philly Mag. So I kept going on there until the end of the season because it closed because it didn't have any walls or anything. You know, it was like an outdoor place. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then I worked at Philly Mag for about three, about three years, I'd say. And that was staff versus contract, which I didn't know anything about at the time. The differences between that, so they totally owned me. Yeah. Um and like, I had very little
0: power there at all. Like you couldn't write for other publications well, or? I
1: I didn't really have the right of refusal for an assignment. Uh-huh. There was no there was no um number of pieces that I ha- had to fulfill. You know what I mean? I, there was no protection for me to be like actually I'm tired I don't want to do anything else. It was like you know I didn't realize that that was the difference between a staff writer and a, you know, a contract writer where you can negotiate. I don't know, maybe some staff writing jobs are like that, but my experience has been that you know you can negotiate with a annual contract the details of you know your work whereas as a staff writer you're just kind of i'll say it you're like someone's bitch kind of yeah. so
0: yeah and when when this happened to you did you did you feel like I'm, I'm living the dream now. Like I, or I did just feel like a job, like well, a I job a, is pretty good job. I
1: took a very expensive apartment in Philadelphia based on the Rittenhouse square experience, which I then could not <laughs> afford once I actually got the contract. But, Wait, really? Yo, yeah. I mean, I did think that this was a moment of big pimping in my life, but it did not prove to be otherwise. But you know, my credit card debt proved that, but um, it was weird. You know, I didn't really realize. Um, you know, I had, i don't, again, I don't mean to sound sort of Pollyannish, but I didn't know anything about the business. Yeah. I had never aspired to be a writer. And um, I didn't realize at the time, um, you know, how, what a great launching pad Philly Mag could be. I mean, there's, you know, they've turned out a rather extraordinary number of very successful long-form writers. Um, so I didn't realize that that was you know, what I would try to use it for too. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, writing has always been very torturous for me and it's only gotten worse the longer I've done it. So it's not something that's, I mean, I think there's like two kinds of writers. I often like imagine there's this certain kind of writer, you know, who like sits in front of their um, computer and almost has like this masturbatory experience as they're like writing. And there's another person who basically, you know, can't bring themselves to sit down to their computer until, like, you know, 5.30 in the morning on the day of their deadline, and I'm definitely in the, the latter camp. Yeah,
0: myself also being in the latter camp, I, I think we've found in interviewing lots of writers that the the former kind exists, yeah. uh, or at least maybe not in the extreme of sort of like the ecstasy of mm-hmm. writing, but at least, like, I sit down and I, I bang it out, but they're they are a lot more rare. Like, those are not 50-50 camps. Those are Mm -hmm. like 10 and 90 or something like that. When I first
1: started, it was like that. The first, and I think that was because of my newspaper experience, which was so immediate. I was used to um, sitting down in a chair and not getting up until a piece was done. So Mm -hmm. the original story, the first few stories I wrote for Philly Mag were, um, you know, I started the piece with the first word and ended it with the last period. And it often went right into print with very little editing. And um, the first piece I wrote for New York Magazine about Travis the Chimpanzee was also, um, strangely, that's what got me that job. Um, and that was totally a spec situation. Oh, and, wow. Oh, was yeah.
0: there... What, I was going to ask, was there... So there was no, like, Philly Mag piece that someone someone emailed you from New York Magazine and said, no, I read this...
1: Not really. Um, yeah, the Philly Mag... I mean, I don't mean to talk shit on them because it was great and I appreciate the opportunity that I had there, but... I left that experience pretty beaten down. Um, and again, like sort of did the cliche, like Europe thing where, which I thought would last a lot longer, but you know, credit cards, only they have <laughs> limits. Yeah, uh, you can keep
0: transferring the balances. Oh, to, I've done it. Yeah. yeah.
1: But eventually like you get on some kind of list where yeah. it can't happen anymore. But, yeah. And then I didn't know what I was going to do again. It was the same kind of situation. And I, I actually thought when I left Philly Mag not to be um, really sort of cheesy, but I thought that I might not ever write again um, because it's just I'm not a prolific writer. Yeah. And the experience there, I, I just felt very misunderstood. By the magazine and by the the industry, they you know that I extrapolated out of and everything else. So like you
0: felt, w- w- you felt like they wanted something from you that was different than what you yeah, uh-huh. could do. Mm-hmm. With-
1: yeah, I, I I really enjoyed. Um, well, I guess I'll say this because I've never had the opportunity before. I did pitch a story to Esquire hmm. in the middle of my Philly Mag experience, and I got the assignment. Um, and the experience went horribly. It was extremely bad Um, and um, those things sort of uh, coincided. The bad experience with Esquire coincided with like my dying days at Philly Mag and I was just kind of like, fuck this, I'm done, like this is not anything that I want to keep doing.
0: Hey, everyone, this is Evan. I wanted to pause the interview with Dan for a moment for a word from our sponsor. And this week, our sponsor is actually the Atavist. Often we have an outside sponsor for the podcast, but we had a couple of great news stories recently, so we thought we would sponsor it ourselves. So if you go to Atavist.com, you'll find our latest, which is a piece by Jennifer Skye. It's called Queen of the Tokyo Ballroom. It's a memoir of her time as a teen model in Tokyo. It's great. It's a wonderful piece of writing, and uh, you can buy it right there. You can buy it in our app and uh, read it right away. While you're there, you can also check out uh, any of our past pieces, uh, including the last one, John Mualem, who you've heard on this podcast, uh, has a piece called American Hippopotamus, which is uh, a really brilliant look at a effort to introduce hippopotamuses to the United States. Um, You can also become a member and uh, get everything we've got, including the whole back catalog. So check it out, adavis.com. And here we are back to Dan P. Lee.
1: So I, you know, didn't know what I was going to do and I just stopped, you know, I started sort of waiting tables and, you know, planning the European dream again.
0: I am curious what the dimensions of the like Esquire debacle were if they were just like the story got killed or I mean I don't I also don't want you to like shit on anyone. for Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Whatever, um, you know, I don't know if it's useful for me to get into this, but I'll tell you and sort of trust you, which is like the last thing, you know, as a reporter <laughs> you ever do. <laughs> Um, but I think uh, that's why I dressed up yeah exactly you're tricking me yeah man yeah. you can What's trust your secrets yeah exactly safe on, in this I mean this microphone this obviously isn't no, it's recording just, anything don't worry about it just yeah. these headphones are to keep us warm <laughs> but uh, yeah the experience there was just that I had had an idea for um, which I'm since resurrected and I'm working on now for someone else but um, for a very kind of out there story and um, the experience I had with the editor there was just really, really bad. And I felt, uh, frankly, that there was a kind of dumbing down um, that that needed to happen with the subject, and there was kind of a, a muscularizing up of the prose simulti- simultaneously that was going on there that just felt incredibly, incredibly um, unnatural to me. It was not my voice, and that was not my story. And, you know, when you're... In your, I mean, I guess then I was probably in my mid-twenties or so. Um, and Esquire is in front of you as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is instructive to repeat this to people who, I mean, because I don't know, you know, but that's intoxicating. And the idea that that could fall apart is so devastating. Yeah. You, know, you think.
0: I think I'm right on the edge of some right huge career or something. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than
1: Esquire and you, you know, you, You know, I had fetishized these magazines. And then, you know, that experience ended up being great because um, that isn't who I am. You know, I don't write like that. You know, and again, I don't want to I don't want to marginalize those magazines and say that they only do one thing. But um, certainly as a relatively no name writer from Philadelphia magazine, uh, my kind of experimental ideas were not, you know, did not go over well.
0: Yeah, you're going to get, I mean, there's a house voice. You're yeah. going to get pulled into the house voice. Yeah. And
1: and some people do that incredibly well, and I envy them for that. But that's been one of the more helpful realizations that I've had is that that is not me. I don't do that. I don't do it well. And I frankly don't really connect to it all that well either. So it's easier to just be like, there's lots of magazines out there, fewer every day. <laughs> but there are magazines out there, and there's a home for everyone, I guess.
0: And then, so th- how did, you said you did the Travis the Chimp story on spec. I mean, that's a story, I didn't realize, I, I guess I didn't look at all the dates. I didn't realize that was your first story for New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. But that was one where, you know, r- writers like probably look at bylines a thousand times more than the average person ever looks at a byline. Yeah. But th- that story, I swear, I, I was reading that story and I that was one where I flipped back to the beginning. I was like, who the fuck wrote this? Who yeah. is this person? Because yeah. that story is amazing. Yeah. And, but you did that. How did you Well, that's decide so, to do it?
1: I mean, uh, this is, again, hopefully a lot of this in the weed stuff will get edited out later, but um, I had moved, I had gone and traveled around and fucked around and done some stupid stuff. And then um, I was actually, um, I had actually moved back in with my parents briefly um, because I didn't have any money. And my grandmother, to whom I'd been very close, had fallen ill and she'd had a stroke and we were sort of helping to take care of her and like kind of trying to rehabilitate her. She was a great character and real, I mean, if I had to be sort of, this is drawing too many parallels, but she was really into telling stories. That mm-hmm. was kind of, I think, I've always been into telling stories. Mm-hmm. So um, I was take, helping to take care of her and I was, um, I re-enrolled in an MFA program and was simultaneously teaching at Rutgers in Camden and uh, outside of Philly and I was taking care of her one day, and she had a daily ritual of the shows that she watched, and she watched General Hospital, which was followed by four, at four o'clock by Oprah Winfrey. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I have very conflicted feelings about Oprah, like I think most
0: people do. But uh, no, I, I don't. I'm not sure I would agree with most people. A lot of people. A lot of people. But there are a lot of people yeah. in the world that do not have yeah, well, <laughs> conflicted feelings about Oprah. But anyway, continue. I try to I,
1: surround myself <laughs> with those people who have conflicted <laughs> feelings about Oprah, but. So, uh, yeah, and she did a show about... Um, I don't know that the whole show was about uh, Travis the Chimp, but um, some of it was. Mm-hmm. And she had had Sharla Nash, who was the mauling victim, um, on the show in what was her first uh, television interview. Like um, revealing the, the she face. She showed, showed her... This was pre-face transplant. Oh, okay, okay. She had showed her face and sort of... Um, And I just, you know, I normally would be, excuse me, doing a whole bunch of other stuff while she'd be watching TV. And I just remembered watching it and I was just like, holy shit, I've never seen anything like this. And I know in the piece I actually wrote like that, you know, describing that that was one of the most extraordinary moments in television history. I still think it is. Yeah. Um, And so I was like, wow, this is a crazy story. And I've had this thing always from back being a newspaper reporter where i feel really envious about reporters who are on a story that i really like yeah um and so um i i had it been i think everybody who was interested in stories was compelled by that travis the chimp story when it came out sure so i'd done my best to ignore everything about it because i just have this very sort of immature reaction to stories that i don't want to know anything about a story that i would want to be a part of
0: even if at the time you're not even actually doing it you're exactly. just thinking like i'm interested in the story yeah i don't right. want to see other. i don't people's. want to know anything about it exactly uh-huh.
1: right so i had read nothing about it basically you know and um i had seen her and then i just was so taken by this and i thought like i want to write a story about this um and so i like i said i was teaching at rutgers in camden and and taking some classes there too and um i ended up uh writing a pitch uh a short one-page pitch not even knowing like sort of what i was doing or why and um jessica pressler who i work with at new york magazine and who i worked with at philadelphia magazine and um with whom i'm pretty good friends or good friends um she um had been at at new york magazine at that time i think she was pretty much on the Mm website and You know she was so generous to me and i have to say you know that's been an interesting part of this experience is to see like the generosity of other writers toward other writers because it can go both ways yeah for sure completely and she was like um you know here's some names of some people at the magazine you should send the pitch to them um and this had this moment had sort of corresponded with david haskell Um, who was the features editor there, and I think now his official title is the deputy editor. He's
0: also a liquor baron.
1: Exactly. (laughs) He's a man of many ads. But um, he uh, had sort of just started, I think, segueing into editing features, and he was looking for writers from what I can sort of put together. And I had sent him that um, pitch. Uh, Well, the pitch made its way to him, and he wrote me back the same day and was like... um, were super enthused by this pitch. Would you want to do it? Um, and I said okay. And then you know we had had this real debate about was you know I had pitched this as a profile of Charlene Nash, basically. What is it like to live today like this now? Yeah.
0: And how do you pitch something like that? Because that I mean it's almost like uh, people would think that it was off limits. I mean it was on the fucking Oprah Winfrey show that yeah, like you would say yeah. like. How could anyone possibly go in and write yeah, about this? Exactly,
1: now? and I would I would never do it again. You uh. know, now knowing what I know today, I would be like that. That's a ridiculous idea. There's nothing there. Well, I don't know if I'd feel that way because I've had this experience a lot of times with pieces I've written that you think the earth is scorched, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, um, yeah, we had had this conversation about the focus of the piece, and um, Adam Moss had been interested in the story for a long time and, um you know it was a way in issue, and pretty quickly it it um became the case that Charlotte was not going to be the focus of the piece. They were a little reluctant at at that from the beginning um and then Charlotte's people immediately um squashed it for me and mm-hmm. basically wouldn't cooperate because they had had a a financial relationship um with nBC news and sort of the, the things that go on with that right. So, for her um, story, you know, exactly yeah, story, uh-huh. yeah yeah, so, you know, I was just like, shit, I don't know what I'm gonna do here. you know, And I realized at that point, I had an idea that this was a, a big deal that if I could get this story and execute it well, I could get more work out of New York magazine and I could get into um, you know, a good you know, realm of magazine writing. So, yeah, I then started on this hunt to try to find out, you know what else there was that hadn't been reported um, and sort of what I would do and um, I'm the kind of reporter who prefers quality over quantity so I'm always kind of looking for the best source not mm-hmm. the most sources and um, I think
0: we should probably stop and po- first of all people should read it if they haven't read it but also we should point out that the main P- rest of the main people in this story were deceased.
1: Everyone was dead in the story. Everyone was dead, which was good and bad. Um, and I basically started trolling uh, chat sites, internet chat sites. And, I, and I've and i said this one other time when I talked about the story in a like search and sequence of events I couldn't replicate for all the money in the world, like in a spinning black hole of the internet. I found this person and um, sort of put this you know, note out there if this person who seemed to know something, if they would get in touch with me, um, and they did, and we had this weird dance. They wouldn't reveal who they were, um, or their relationship to Sandy Harold, who became the protagonist of the piece okay. alongside Travis, her son slash chimp. And um, I went up to Connecticut and met this person in a jamba juice, not knowing who they were, or if they would show. And they had, you know. They'd stood me up a couple times ahead (laughs) of this. And we met in this John Juice, and sort of just had a conversation that went on for like more than an hour that was not about Travis, and that in in which I still did not learn the identity of this person. And then um, at one point in the conversation, the person revealed um, their identity, and they were, in fact, I don't, I'm not, I just don't want to sort of reveal because they didn't want it, but they were basically a family member. Um, and, and they were not in the
0: story. They didn't end up in the story. They did
1: not, and they had really never been in anything before. And um, you know, what almost every story I've written goes the same way. We commenced a relationship, um, you know, a long-term relationship, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we. I I prob. This is very standard for me in stories. I probably um, interviewed this person for. Um, I don't know, maybe 30 hours total, um sp- split out over periods of time.
0: So this was your one this was your source that had too, everything. Exactly. But this, was but, the-
1: but this was a great great source and um uh you know, and I trespassed on the property. You know, the the everything had been frozen in time cuz Sandy had died recent, not long after Travis had. Mm-hmm. And that sort of and there was the ongoing lawsuit from Charlotte which froze everything. Literally, the house was just frozen as it was the day that she died. So, you know, I trespassed and I sort of really went as far as I could to get as much as I could. And um, the story—I I hate to say this because it sounds ridiculous—but it almost did write itself, and quickly it it appeared to me as a fairy tale. That's you know, and I have written
0: down right here. Yeah, it starts like a fairy tale. It really it, does. Yeah. That that. uh the story of how she came to love mm-hmm. chimps and everything else. It's like, and then it, it's like a fairy tale that yeah. just slowly turns.
1: And, and the experience with New York was incredible. David was awesome. I mean, I said in the first, that piece was very minimally edited less than any other piece I think I've ever written, which I think was one of the reasons why they were so excited to hire me. Little did they know the next draft <laughs> and everyone after I'd submit it 30,000 words, you know, and we would start our, you know, whatever, but um, they were great great I mean the experience of working for them immediately was really interesting first of all working with people in New York was interesting I had had like I said the very bad experience with Esquire notwithstanding people in you know the bigger people in New York were always incredibly kind to me and um much more willing to understand that you know every writer is a little different and needs different treatment and um I thought the first draft I sent was terrible. I'd been up for days writing it. And David sent me this email, I'll never forget back, that said, like, you know, this is the kind of draft editor's dream about getting and get some sleep and we'll talk later. And yeah, and that was it. And they offered me a job based on that. It was the same experience I had had with Philly Mag. And just one interesting aside about that piece is that in terms of editing, you know, Adam Moss has this very... Legendary persona in you know the business, and I don't know him particularly well at all. But um, the first section had been very much the way that it was, but I had used uh, you know the, I'd always had this conflicted relationship with nut graphs, you know, as a yeah, newspaper. It, report. Me, we all do, okay? all, yeah. yeah. And um, I had had this you know sort of graph at the end of it that um, that was like. Uh, You know, Jessica Pressler and I used to joke when we worked at Philly Mag that every story needed that bump bump that's in the Law and Order. You know, in Law and Order, whenever like there's that bump bump sound that like is signifies something. Yeah. So we used to make jokes about it all the time. Like, where's the bump bump in this piece? (laughs) And you need one. And so that had that there, and it was the the first section ended with that. And um, I'll never forget it. You know, David and I had gone back and forth that it needed something to suggest that something was going to happen later. And Adam had had you know relatively few edits but um, when the draft came back he slashed that and he was like we don't need that Um, just let it go and I thought that was such a great um, thing because it meant like oh cool you're interested the other thing about that story that was so unusual is it has uh, no attribution in the entire thing. Yeah
0: it's actually just a straight It's straight there's no quotes quotes.
1: Um, I mean there are some like live quotes inside um, and people have asked me about that. There's a section in it when I'm quoting a scene inside their house. Mm-hmm. That was a an incredible moment um, where I had obtained uh, a home video. Um, and I was so that was not made up. That story was um, in 100%, you know, factual and they were cool. The magazine was confident with, you know, the source backup that I gave them and everything that we didn't have to sort of Clunk up the narrative by saying such and such said or according to, and I remember when the lawyer was vetting that piece, um, I heard that the lawyer like had had all these red marks and was like, "Shit, you know this is terrible," and then got to the end and was like, "Oh my god, everyone's dead." Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're fine. Like, let's he go. The shit out of these people. Yeah, exactly. ah, but they're all dead. They're
1: all dead. So, yeah. but
0: I want I want to duck back into talking for a second about that editor writer relationship because you said it felt it felt different there and and other than you know, Adam Moss and the idea of sort of like letting the narrative be itself. What what were the other aspects of why did it feel different? Like, what, what is it about your approach that you felt like is accommodated by working with them that you hadn't felt that way before?
1: Well, um, I, I I feel weird about doing it, but I'm going to. The editor at Philadelphia Magazine, who I had had at the time, had been mercurial and difficult to deal with. And, you know, I I give them their due that they were... Um, you know, you know, I appreciate what they did for me and for my career, but they did not understand me and they were not interested in trying to understand me. And, um, you know, at one of the points when I was being put on probation, which was never for the... My work—it was always for arbitrary things. I is that felt. a real thing?
0: Like literally?
1: Oh yeah, there's like a note, yeah. and I guess it goes in your file. And oh, I thought and I thought you were just—that was just oh no no speech. no. I would all and a, a friend of mine who was also on probation at the Lansing Press would always say that we were act, we were being actively probated. You know, at the time, so um, he had taken me into his office at one point, and I was always on the verge of being fired for something. And you know, the truth is, I do blow deadlines. I mean, David Haskell will attest to this to the end. Um, but, you know, I always was very serious about my work and wanted to do the best that I could do. And he took me in his office and was basically like, you know, it's not clear to me whether you're going to have a career or not. You might, but you probably will fuck it up. And that was kind of like the mentality that they had um, sort of had toward me. Like so, sort of tough, tough love? Yeah, and and there was overtones of uh, like sort of like a paternalistic attitude that was weird that I was like young and I was like some kind of like... You know, uh, you know, like barnacle from the sticks and and sea of Cape May County, New Jersey, which has its own sort of like thing. You know that I was from down the shore, quote unquote, which has always been something that galls me. I hate that expression. Nobody who lives there calls it, you know, down the shore or the, uh-huh. shore or the Jersey Shore. But um, so it was always that kind of thing. And then um, so I had like internalized a lot of that. And then when um, I started working. With David and and with New York Magazine, they were, um, they took me seriously, and they were, um, they just understood that the that the process was complicated for me, and they were willing to give me the room that I needed, and you know, even just in talking about stories in the way that I wanted to approach them. I mean, the Anna Nicole Smith piece that I wrote, I uh, the first draft of that was in a screenplay form. Um, and I wanted to do that as a a nonfiction screenplay. I thought that that was the greatest idea in the world. Maybe it still is. And, um, you know, they didn't react to that by being like, you're on probation. You Freak (laughs) goes in your file. Exactly. Right. They were like, well, this isn't probably going to work, but we like the cinematic aspects and here's how maybe we can make this work. So there's always, there's been just, um, you know, they've, they've, we've, we've just had a, a, a more agreeable relationship, I would guess, I would say. Yeah. And I hate the fact that I'm talking shit about Philly Mag because I'm not trying to, but, um, you know, I mean, everybody has a different experience, you know, and, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I
0: think part of why we like talking to writers, like, I love talking to writers because it's just the the ways in which you kind of approach it and the ways in which editors respond to you. I mean, I'm sure we could get... We've had other Philly Magazine alums in here who probably say, even that same editor would say, when he sat me down and said, you're a good writer, but don't fuck it up, they were like, all right. And then, you know, it's just... Exactly right. And my reaction to, to that
1: was like, well, fuck you, I'm out of here, you know, as <laughs> soon as I can find a waitering <laughs> job, I'm gone. You know, so that, I mean, I'm your, your point's well taken, and I, I'm probably not the easiest person to deal with in many ways, but... um. At the risk of sounding, you know, overly cute and and precious, like I do believe in the art of writing, you know, and that's the most important thing to me.
0: Well, then now, I mean, now that you're at New York, I mean, you have a wide range of pieces that you've been doing the last few years. I mean, mm-hmm. it, they're sort of hard to categorize. I was trying to, you know, find some through lines and sort of see what like categories I felt they they fell into. But there there are some that are that are like uh, celebrity profile is not quite the right mm-hmm, word, but they mm-hmm. they touch on celebrity or they touch on mm-hmm. uh, pop culture in mm-hmm. some way. And there's some that are just very far on the other end of the spectrum where they, I, I was thinking of them as like stories that ask you to like face up to something mm-hmm. very serious and potentially very horrible. Mm-hmm. And so I guess first I'm curious, like how does that range of stories come about? Is it Do you just follow your own interests or is some of it coming your way from from David Haskell or other editors? How does that? It's a little of
1: both. I have a a really, you know, enviable situation there where I have the right of refusal, so they can't make me do anything I don't want to do. Sometimes I'm in a position there where I feel that my stock is low and I'll do something I really (laughs) probably wouldn't otherwise do to try to endear myself to them. But, um, you know, I have a particular worldview. Everyone does. Um, It sounds ridiculous to say and sort of... uh, I don't know I don't want to be intellectually um, superficial but you know I ha- there are a lot of sort of philosophical ideas that I'm interested in and, and you know I from the time that I was in high school existentialism has been kind of a an, you know something that I've been interested in and I think that um, you can if you're looking for a through line in my stories um, those narrative pieces tend to I think have a lot about that mm-hmm. about, Um you know sort of how I see the world. Um,
0: but they don't, they don't have, they tend to not, I'm thinking specifically of the, uh, of the Stanford, Connecticut mm-hmm. fire story. Mm-hmm. Like it's not really about providing answers. Like exactly. you might start that story right. thinking, I'm going to find out how this man is redeemed. Yeah. But that wasn't my experience of, yeah. re, it's very difficult to read.
1: Yeah, it is. And I don't, it was very difficult to report and to write. Um, and, I think that's actually the story I'm I'm proudest of. I've I don't like anything I've ever written. I try not to ever read it again. Um yeah, I don't I don't believe in answers, you know. So that's what compels me to write all of these stories. I mean, they don't none of them ends nicely, you know, none of them end neatly. And that's been difficult. And I, that's why when you talk about celebrity profiles if you're talking about recently I did I profiled um Alfonso Corona and, and um Steve McQueen Yeah
0: and the Fiona, and Fiona Well Apple, that was its own it was different, ball of different wax. kind of thing yeah. but, but those we'll two, talk about that those a two in
1: particular um, were reactions to that I, I I'm really interested in film uh, in a very armchair um, you know um, way I don't know anything about it but um, and that's kind of been a way to sort of move away from there's only so many I'm working on another one right now that kind of fits into this you know of my sort of uh, collection of existential magazine stories, but um, I don't, I've always hated stories that end with a bow at the end um, because I don't think life ends with a bow at the end, you know? And um, so for me, that's really been something that's been, you know, and I think of that, like I said, I'm, I'm very proud of that Stanford fire story. Um, it's the only one I think I'm very proud of, but I think that, Um, that story was incredibly carefully constructed and calculated, but I don't think that it necessarily reads that way or in a way that um, the thing that I think that I can do the best as a writer in this kind of genre is I can accurately portray the experience that I had reporting it without making it about myself. But that story, the fire story felt the way I felt, um, immersed in in his world and in the world of that tragedy. And I think that that's the best that I can do, is to be sort of truthful and honest to the feeling, you know? But it it
0: also seems like you'll delve into details. Like, that story has a very detailed account of what happened mm-hmm. that would be hard for anyone, I think, to read. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you had to, like, report those details. But other stories have that too. Like the the chimp story has like the 911 call. Like you don't sort of pull back from the from the like most horrible details. Mm-hmm. Even the GQ story has really details of the guy's car accident that he gets into. And I feel like is that something that you sort of just happens natural in your writing? I want to like get as far as possible into this. Or do, are you actually saying in a philosophical sense like we should face up to these details. Like if you're going to read about this, you should read – exactly what happened here's what happened
1: absolutely and you know i've had a weird experience where especially with it's funny with john sullivan who i should add you know he and i have um since i left um uncw we have not i think we may have had one interaction over all these years so it's not like we i have any you know i'm not selling his books or whatever but um you know i had in the beginning i was very taken with his style of writing um and Um, I do think he's one of the best writers in any kind of writing that we've got out there today. And, um, he's incredibly intelligent and, um, and you can feel that in his writing. It's his intelligence comes through really, um, strongly. But, um, so in the beginning when I first started writing, I really wanted to be that kind of writer. You know, he's clever, he's funny, he does all these things really, really well. And I thought, I want to do that. And I tried to do it and it didn't work. Um, and then I sort of, I think this is what it's about a little bit, if I have any advice to impart, but Mm -hmm. it's sort of about finding your voice and finding out what you do and then sort of, um, pushing that as far as you can. So, um, it's funny. Um, the Travis story, um, when I wrote that one, one of the things I hated about it is I felt like it was very underwritten. Um, you know, the actual writing of it.
0: It's very straightforward. It's
1: very straightforward. And that was the thing that David and Adam and these people really connected with the most. And, um, you know, Adam even sent me a couple really nice emails where he was basically talking about my style and how much he loves my style. And I was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. There is no style here. I almost felt that those pieces were without style. Um, but then I realized that like, when you're writing these kinds of stories, especially the writing often can get in the way. And sometimes it's harder. Um, it's harder to let the details work. Um, you know, and let the writing step back. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but... um, Yeah. Yeah, I do feel really, you know, yeah, absolutely. If you're going to read a story about um, a tragedy, then, you know, you should feel it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess, I mean, the there's an alternative approach to it that would be, you know, you get to that point and it's sort of like we all know what happened next, you know, which was true. I think in a lot of these Mm -hmm. stories, like you could elide.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Those details. You're right. And I think I've thought about that a lot. And again, I'm working on a story right now that's got a little bit of this in it, but it's very different in some ways. But um, I'm a a very cinematic thinker, Um, you know, and I'm not trying to say I'm special in that way. I think a lot of writers are and a lot of people are. I think that's the genre of our time is cinema. You know, it's not the written word. Um, so what all, almost always compels me to a story is a single, a single scene. Um, and in these stories, you know, that we're talking about here, there is that scene. And I feel like, um, if I can deliver, if I can deliver enough context around it, that I can then give you that scene, like as far as I can take it, you know, as, as intense as I can do it, then, um, you know, that's what I try
0: to do and let's let's talk about this Fiona Apple story a little oh bit cuz god do we have to yeah uh, have you have you had to talk about it a lot i feel like it, well i don't talk about anything but yeah i know I was, so I was,
1: yeah but no i mean it's 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 a very certainly was different it, it was, was different. different it was different and it yeah. was
0: i mean i guess the first thing i'm curious about so just to, like in the course of the story you basically become friends with fiona apple in some right. form or another mm-hmm. how transactional that is is sort of like part of the story yep. in some ways mm-hmm. um and we've had other people on, like Amy Wallace, and uh, and people who have, who do celebrity profiles in all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'm fr- I'm curious first if you got the sort of like, you know, journalism pushback that was like, well, this is not really how you're supposed to do it, or mm-hmm. this is over the top, or this is indulgent, or any of those yeah. kind of responses.
1: Well, I try I try really hard to stay away from what anyone's saying about anything because it's. Just, I'm a very self-conscious person. It doesn't do me much good. Mm -hmm. So I don't really even know that. I mean, obviously, every once in a while, like in a dark moment, I'll Google and try to find... And I'm looking specifically for the most vituperative, most horrible thing that a person has said, you know. Or if I'm scanning the comments of a story I've written, which I never do at all anymore. I'm only looking for the one where the person's like, this guy's horrible. But, um... Yeah, I mean, I I think from what I understand, there was that, that did exist. Um, there was um, another writer who was asked about this. This will be a convoluted way to explain this, but I just am not interested in getting into a pissing match with anybody. But there was a another writer who was asked about this story in an odd way. Um, and that writer responded that there's a long tradition of men... Um, trying to seduce the female subjects that they're writing, mm. um, which I got quite a laugh out of for a whole host of reasons. But um, that was not what happened here at all. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it ran the gamut, I think, of, of reactions about, um, you know, there were people who, who criticized the fact that I was in the piece um, at right. all or that, you know, I included details about myself. um, And I guess what I would try to say, and this is self-aggrandizing, but like, I think that that piece enabled you to get Fiona, get to know Fiona Apple better than any sort of traditional kind of, um, you know, journalistic, you know, construction that you could imagine and I couldn't care less about journalism in that instance like I'm not like reporting on Al-Qaeda you know what I mean like this is a profile of Fiona Apple and like it's not it's not journal I mean I actually don't call myself a journalist and I don't see what I'm doing as journalism so it's very again self a little self indulgent, but you I, think
0: of it more as just nonfiction writing or I think as of it narrative as, writing. I or? think
1: of it. This is like enough. I should like the gong should go now. But <laughs> I think of it as art, and I think that you know, I think that um, I try to make art. I probably fail most of the time at it, but um, so that's all I care about. I couldn't, and you know, in the future, looking forward to what I want to do, I just want. I'm interested in making it weirder and. As as unconventional as I possibly can and still exist in you know a money making enterprise, but um yeah, so I don't care at all about that, and yeah, that story but, was very weird. You know, the experience very, was extremely weird. Again, reason. the only th- in my defense, I would say that, and 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 Fiona said this after the fact too, um that she felt that it was incre- that it was um, incredibly realistic to our experience. And that to me was the highest praise I could get, and um, that's the you know the best I can do.
0: And I, the other thing that I thought was interesting is you you are very much in that piece. I mean you're it's, if you're in meeting with her. You're getting stoned. You're doing these different things. You're at her house. You're talking, you're talking to her brother and all these. Um, but I still didn't know that much about you. Like, there's this moment in the story where you say, then I told her something incredibly intimate about myself. And then you don't say what it is. Yeah.
1: Well, that's the inside baseball part we can talk about, which is um, I did in the first draft.
0: Oh, really? I won't tell
1: you, but I did. I did. Um, It was in there. And apparently, you know, I'm, I'm away from varick street and new york magazine headquarters so i don't know that much of what goes on there which is probably better just out on an island exactly yeah it sounds a lot more yeah (laughs) freezing and having pipes exploding but you know um but apparently that was a point of uh debate in the office about what should be done with that and that went on until the 11th hour um and ultimately um the resolution was the one that we all agreed with, um, the way that that should be handled. But, um, yeah, I didn't... I actually, when I look back on it, I'm really glad that it was left out. It didn't seem... It would have really been a distraction. It wasn't about me. Um, ultimately, you know, it's not a personal essay. It is um, basically a profile, so... Yeah. In a manner of speaking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: about primarily one person, for sure. Exactly. Um, yeah. So you're you're living on an island of some right. sort mm-hmm. without uh, heat or... Uh, do you have to take a boat out there?
1: Nope, uh-uh. It's a uh, uh, part of the network of the barrier islands that sort of, you know, string down along the East Coast. Oh, so okay. it's right off the coast. You just take a bridge and through the marsh to get there.
0: And, I mean, obviously, that's a different uh, approach. Uh, and we've talked about sort of being outside of the, like, greater magazine publishing industry. But do you do you feel like you know what you want out of this at this point? That, like, you're kind of just I'll go along with doing New York magazine stuff or you have like a greater thought of like, okay, now I see where this goes from here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel that we should, you know, if we're winding down here, we should end it with the ultimate cliche, which is that (laughs) I do kind of want to write movies. So like, that's kind of what I would like to do. um, Eventually and sooner than later. Um, And in a weird way, I think that this work has helped prepare me to do it. Um, So that's kind of, I mean, I, I, I still enjoy, um, writing magazine stories. As I said before, it's become increasingly difficult for me. Um, everyone, they just, and I'm, um, you know,
0: just to stop for a second right there. Do you feel like, why do you know why it is? Do you feel like you're repeating yourself or it's why is it? It seems like it could get easier over time. I don't
1: entirely know why. I don't know if it's you know, it's weird. Every single time I sit down to write a story, I'm convinced I can't do it this time. Every time. And people around me will be like, oh, that's stupid. Why do you think that? But I can't tell you why. I just do. And, you know, there's nothing, There's no more horrible sight than uh, an empty Microsoft Word document, like, blinking in front of you. It's like... And um, there's so many things that I want to say, I guess. There's so many things I have in my head that I want to try to communicate. And I know that the process between here and there is just sort of torturous. Um, so I don't know if, you know, maybe it's, maybe I have a, a, a better sensibility now than I did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's the, it's, it's become really difficult for me to 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 execute it. And again, I'm not a prolific person. I I do over-report. I will pursue a tangent to the bottom of the ocean. And, you know, we'll spend six weeks writing that sentence into the piece to have it eventually cut. You know, like, I still haven't totally learned how to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm doing a story now that involves weather. So, you know, and when I wrote that, um, The Fire Story... I got manuals from you know national fire codes, mm. and I tried to learn the ca- learn as much as I could in my sort of you know imbecile mind about how fire works and everything else. And a lot of times, you know, I read books and books about chimpanzees, you know. And I, this is the way. And I think a lot of people when I wrote the GQ story, I read the bulk of a reproductive. <laughs> Textbook. I mean, right. I have textbooks all over my house. The right. space story was like,
0: oh yeah, that we've even talked that about just that. Was but yeah. like,
1: yeah, I mean, that was, you know, so many books. So I mean, I, I reported that for months. I went.
0: That was on your. I noticed that from your all, Twitter feed that you were way back. You were saying uh, you started quote. You had a few things about you yeah. know space flight and
1: yeah, I love space. I'm really into space, and that's kind of the the little bit of the conflicted thing I have is that like. Um, I would like to write. I have talked about writing a book about space. It's been something I've um, batted around for a while um, with like an agent and stuff like that. But I don't think I can commit to, um, I don't think I can commit like that. It's a big commitment.
0: Yeah. And do you see yourself just jumping off into movies or saying I'm going to write a, well, right. We, we all You're need like, money. Yeah. You know?
1: That's the thing about <laughs> it, is that um you build a life and it costs money, you know? Um so yeah, I mean I am I, not in a position where I could just sort of do the my old trick and, you know fly to Europe and start, you know being like, you know, my a Hemingway and gap jeans again, you know, like um
0: Is that is that restaurant still open at Cape May? <laughs>
1: I don't know. I haven't been down there, but I appreciate your advice. Yeah, it's good. I'm just saying, they always have a home for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, I was very happy there. So that's (laughs) something to think about. But no, so no, I mean, I, I, you know, and and, and I don't want to seem ungrateful. Having a career in this, you know, industry that is, you know, constantly sort of breathing its agonal breaths is, you know, uh, puts me in a very rare percent. So I'm mindful of all that. And, you know, I don't want to. But, yeah, I, I definitely am interested in doing other stuff, too. You know, I see these things in my head. Well, it sound like I'm, like,
0: a paranoid
1: schizophrenic, <laughs> but I see these stories in my head, and I am interested in seeing them visually, you know?
0: I think people understand what you mean. I hope so. All right, well, I have to thank you doubly, since you never do anything like this, oh, for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We'll, we'll let you... Get out of the hellhole that is oh, in the U.S. media world. I'll put my world. paper
1: bag back on and head back. <laughs> <laughs> get back on my boat and head back home.
0: Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast this week. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavists. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform.org. Thanks to Dan P. Lee for coming up from an island off the coast in order to uh, do the podcast. And uh, thanks to our editor, Lauren Kirchner, thanks to our intern, Sarah Button, and we will see you next week.